We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, brethren and sisters and all who are here this morning in, in the house of God, I make a very simple statement that I believe we all agree with. Backsliding is the most miserable of places for a Christian to be in. The most miserable of places for the Christian to be in. As I began to think about the, the way in which I could introduce this message, my mind instantly went to a portion within uh, John Bunyan's famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And even though that was written, what, 1650, 1670, that sort of time frame, it's still as relevant and applicable to us today in terms of illustration and application. And in the course of Pilgrim's Progress, there's an occasion where uh, the main character, of course, Christian, who is Pilgrim himself, and and hopeful, they, they enter into a place which is called the Enchanted Ground. And uh, as they go through the enchanted ground, they, they realize they have to stimulate Christian conversation so they don't fall asleep and become weary and dreary and tired and become distracted in such a journey. And they begin to speak about many things, but one of the things they begin to speak about is the subject of backsliding itself. Now, when it comes to Christian's turn, because first of all, Hopeful has a few things which he wants to say, but when it comes to Christian, he begins to outline the characteristics of the backslider's path. At this stage of my message, I'm just going to simply list what John Bunyan gave in this great book, The Pilgrim's Progress. What I have done is slightly reduced each of the sentences and just maybe changed some of the wording so it helps the younger ones who are here there this morning. But listen very carefully as I read these things. And think about how Bunyan, all of those years ago, as he writes Pilgrim's Progress, and there as Christian begins to speak to Hopeful, think of how the pathway and the road to backsliding is described. And then ask yourself the question, two questions. First of all, is this biblically accurate? And it is. And secondly, is this where I find myself in the house of God today? So he begins and he says this. The pathway starts when such will stop thinking about God, death, and judgment to come. We start to cease those things in our minds. We stop thinking. And then he goes on in this pathway of backsliding. Private duties. Listen, private duties such as prayer, reading of scripture, Watching against sin and sorrow for sin, these things are cast off. They're put to one side. And then such will begin to shun the company of godly Christians. They won't want to be around Christians. They won't want to hear what Christians have to say because it reminds them of what they should be and where they should be walking. And then public Christian duty starts to drop off begins it quietly and privately with prayer and reading of scripture. It's easier at such times to keep up the act of being in church, but by and by those things start to go. It's just the one meeting. It's just the occasional meeting. There's no prayer meeting. There's no Bible study. The hearing of the word of God, the fellowship of the saints, it begins to drift And then such will begin to pick holes in the godly. That's what Bunyan goes on to identify as he uses this particular analogy here. And you'll find that they will find reasons to criticize other Christians because they're really trying to give themselves an excuse as to why they themselves are far away from God. Then they begin to join more with immoral and 
worldly people. They begin to associate more with this company. And then they begin to play openly with little sins, as he calls it. And lastly, being hardened, they launch into the full gulf of misery and sin. So very insightful and very powerful outline of the backsliders' path. And any time I read those words, I can't help but saying how true it is. How true it really is. A very astute description of what in every single age in the Christian church is true of anyone who is far away from God. And if we have known backsliding, or if we are backsliding, or even the seasons of backsliding begin within our soul, you will often find that's the path it takes every single time. However, as we look at what John Barney said, we move into a more powerful reminder of what backsliding is in Scripture. And in doing so, we remind ourselves that as there is a pathway which outlines the treacherous road of backsliding, yet graciously and mercifully, God gives us another road. And he gives us another pathway. And he shows us in the word of God the road to recovery. You see, while there is a road that is clearly describing what it is to backslide and fall away from God, our God, being infinitely kind, doesn't leave us in such a way, does he? And time and time again, he outlines the pathway back to him. As I've called in this message today, the road to recovery. And so it is, as we come now to chapter 33, we we notice this direction and we see these words and we see how in this portion of Scripture, because already for the most of us who have been here, we, we know what the problem was. We know about their idolatry. We're familiar with these things. We've gone into great detail. But how do we get back from this? How do you recover? Is there recovery for you? Yes, there is. And may the Lord just write these words upon every one of our hearts. This road to recovery, I've outlined with three very simple words. And that's all I'm leaving with you in the house of God today, these three words. The first word is rebuke. And then we'll look at repentance. And then we'll look at return. Very simple headings, but I trust the Lord will draw and give us the meat and the food that we need around these headings. So the the road to recovery, it begins with rebuke. It begins with rebuke. And if you look at verses 1 to 3, you'll find that in the words of God, which he gives to Moses, and Moses gives to the the people who make up this whole nation of Israel, that is here encapsulated within these words is a rebuke from the Father himself. You know, when we read the Scriptures, we we find time and time again that it is a manifold, it's it's a manifest, I should say, Reminder of the love and the mercy of God that as many as he loves, he does rebuke. And he does chasten. We we could turn to many scriptures to illustrate that. But do you remember that time in Revelation when the Lord Jesus was speaking to the church of Laodicea and it was in a terrible place. It was described, it was described by the Lord Jesus Christ as being lukewarm. It was insipid. It wasn't hot and it wasn't cold and it was sort of there on the lines of never quite knowing, well, are these people my people in the first place? Lukewarmness descended and it was the most awful thing. It was obnoxious to our gracious God. 
And yet there was still a, a road to recovery within that portion of Scripture. And so there in chapter 3, verse 19, what is it the Lord Jesus says? As many as I love, I rebuke. It's, it's a sign. It's a sign of his love. It's a token of mercy. The chastenings and the rebukes of our Heavenly Father, listen, they're tokens of mercy that he's not done with us. And therefore we should never despise them. What I would say is that at times we might not see them for what they are. We may be so far from God as Israel were, we might be receiving the chastenings and rebukes and they're coming thick and fast against our life. And we haven't read them. We haven't yet understood them. We don't realize what they are. But they are reminders that God is dealing with you, as with children. Because he is your father. And often many times the rebukes that God will give and administer they will come in uh, different ways. I, I, I certainly believe when you analyze Scripture, you look at it, they will always begin inwardly. They'll, they'll always begin with the Lord taking a dealing with your heart and striving with your conscience and convicting you and, and, and graciously giving you time and opportunities and seasons away from the public eyes of people to get right with God. But it may well be, as we find here, that God brings it into the open. And he begins to rebuke his people and individuals more openly, as we find here. You see, when we come to chapter 32, as we've dealt with it, the rebuke has already come in some fashion. But now it's as we come to church, chapter 33 that it becomes almost the apex and the climax because God has something to say through Moses to his people that is going to be the means by which he stirs the people back to their senses. And we'll come to what that very statement is very shortly. But as we think about the rebuke as part of this road of recovery, notice that the method by which the rebuke came. How does God give his children his medicine? Um, don't know why, but Mary Poppins popped into my head when I was doing the study. And it was the, it was the song, you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. I had to hold back from singing the rest and dancing around with umbrellas in the room. Not that I would ever do that, by the way, so don't be too worried. But it's a very, it's a very legitimate truth. A, a spoonful of sugar helping the medicine to go down. It's why medicine is laced with sugar. It's why when our, our little ones are little, sometimes we're trying to give them what we perceive to be the, the better food, the savory food. And sometimes you have to introduce it with something sweet beforehand. Because you want the goodness to be given. You want the thing that really helps the individual to be given. And what I look at here, I see not just a spoonful of goodness, but I see an abundance, a bucket load of the goodness of God given as he words his timely rebuke. And you say, well, where, where is that? You've got your Bible in front of you. Look at verses 1 to 3, and you'll see it right before your eyes. Verses 1 and 2, the Lord reminds Moses that they and the people were still going to advance. That's goodness, isn't it? They're still going to go ahead. They're still going to inherit the land. I've brought you out of Egypt, and I'll bring you into land, which I swear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the first instance of this medicine, the goodness of God. He will still bring his people through. And then the Lord adds more to it. And, and he says in verse 2, he says, I'll, I'll drive out the enemies. I'll drive out those hostile neighbors. 
I'll drive out all of those, those vites that you have there, the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite. They'll all be gone. I'll, I'll, I'll do this for you. That's goodness. And, and the Lord even adds more here. The Lord reminds that there's going to also be something else here. There's going to be the sending forth of the, of the angel before Moses and the people. The, the, these were all tokens of God, but it's important to see that they were given as a means to serve this people, this great rebuke, which was central. And we'll, we'll come to that rebuke in a, in a few moments, but I don't want you to lose sight of the method by which God rebukes his people. He does it in tender mercy. He comes in a moment with the central truth that rebukes them to their very core, but he does it in a method whereby he's still demonstrating how good he is. Do you see it? Do you see how loving our Father is? How merciful our God is? How many times is it true of us even this day in the house of God have we trod that backslidden pathway we've become wayward and distant and even though we deserve a cutting off and a severing from ever there is the constant nature of what we call the appeals or the overtures or the calls from God. He he says you've done this and you've grieved me yet still will I do this for you. The road to recovery does begin with rebuke, but even in the midst of rebuke, there's mercy. So there's a method by which the rebuke comes, but notice also there's a meaning within the rebuke that was given. The central news was shattering, okay? Let's let's, Let's not underestimate this. The rebuke itself was horrifying. You know what? I wonder when Moses heard about the angel... You know, the angel was mentioned at the end of uh, chapter 32. For those of you that noticed, it was mentioned in verse 34. And it's mentioned again, I'll, I'll send an angel before you. Maybe Moses stops for a moment and he thinks to himself, well, why, why, why do you need to send an angel? Why would you send an angel when we've got you? Why, why send an angel? We've got God. We've got the presence of God. And that's where the rebuke comes. Moses, Moses, look at verse 3. You're going to go to a land that flows of milk and honey. I didn't even mention that goodness. There's more there. But here's the rebuke. For I will not go up in the midst of thee. I will not go up in the midst of thee. Just just pause and reflect upon that this day. Now, how, how do you get that? How do you understand it? What does it, what does it mean to our hearts and our lives this day? Well, let's remember something. Let's pause and reflect about everything we know about the Lord himself. What do we know about our God? Well, we know this, don't we? We know that the Lord's infinite being means that God cannot be, you know, sectioned off into a corner of existence that we sort of, he's there forever away from from us or from his people. So it doesn't mean that. And, And it doesn't mean that the people will never be able to access him and commune with him because they can do that. And it certainly doesn't mean they won't inherit the land, even though it's the future generation that will do it, because the promise is still there in place. But, it, but it's this, and it's a reminder to us that our backslidings and our distances from God, listen, it carries with it painful consequences. It, it, it does something that you just can't deny and you can't hide from. 
that we lose the distinctness and the special nature of the presence of God. And that's how it's worded there in verse 3. It's not so much about not going up. I'll not go up in the midst of thee. I'll not be where you are. I'll not, I'll not give you the intimacy of my presence. There's going now to be a distance from the presence of God. And anyone that will be honest of themselves, he says, as a Christian, they have known periods of life where they've been far from God. The, the one thing that grieves the most is that there's a distance between themselves and God in communion. And it's, it, it's so hard. And it's so painful. And I, and I wonder if that's where you sit and find yourself. You sit here and you say, Lord, you're not in the midst of my life. Because I'm not in the midst of your life. I, I'm identifying the road. It's reality here. Now remember in, in promising their entrance into the land, which as I said it turned out it would be more for the generation to come, God is, is reminding us of a, of a needful truth that will never be severed, will never be severed from God eternally because of backsliding. Remember that. We're not dealing with someone who's never been saved. I'm not dealing with that wording here. I'm dealing with a genuine Christian who's far away from God. And for the genuine Christian, one of the most painful fallouts is this loss of special nearness and those sweet times of fellowship. And it's worded in that verse, I will not go up in the midst of thee. The longing that we must have in our hearts this day is that to return. Oh Lord, we need this back again. We need this back again. We need our God in the midst of us. That was the rebuke. Dear Christian, the question is very simple. Is this the rebuke that the Lord has to give to you or to me? Because of where we are, because of where we're not, in a sense. The Lord says, I'm rebuking you. I am not in the midst of you. Well, the, the, the road to recovery, it, it begins with rebuke. It leads on to repentance, doesn't it? Look at verses 4 and 6 as we continue here. Verses 4 and 6, and as we think of their repentance, which is now given to us in verses 4 to 6, the first thing we see is their reaction. Reactions will always tell you a lot about people. How they react and what they do when they react. Well, we can see their reaction here. Verse 4, when the people heard the evil tidings, they mourned. I'm mindful that the, the children were here, and, I, and anyone here, who, when they read the word evil, you always think of maybe morally wicked. You know, evil people doing evil things. In the Bible, it also has the meaning of, of bad and, and calamitous. So when, when they heard the bad or the calamitous news... This, this wasn't good news, was it? it? It wasn't good news to be hearing these words. Uh, you know, what you, what you inherit the land? I think about this and I think to myself, what, they've got the goodness of God. They're going to go to a land of milk and honey. But what is that if we don't have God in the midst of us? We don't want the rest of our Christian life to be lived at a distance. I don't want that. And I'm sure you don't want that either. But that, that's what you've, you've got here. It's, it's, it's a calamity. It's bad news. And, and it brings them into a place of sincere mourning. 
Now, when we think of what they had previously seen, they had, they had lots of reasons to be, be brought into a place of godly repentance and mourning. Just remind yourselves of some of the things which have happened already. Moses came down from the mount, and he was filled with righteous anger. And he had the tables of stone upon which the law was given, and they were broken. That was a rebuke. That was enough for some people. And then he took the, the golden calf, and he, he, he brought it down to powder, and he, he melted it once again, and he sprinkled it upon the waters, and he made the people drink of that water. But even that was not enough. And then he words his rebuke, and he speaks to them. And then they see 3,000. I've mentioned this several times now. I'm saying it because I want to really envisage it the best you can. The, the 3,000 people are instantly wiped out. They're into eternity. They're, 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 they're put to death by the swords of the, of the people of, of Levi. The Levi there. And, and, and there's, there's blood on the sword. And there's blood on their hands. And, and even that is not bringing them to mourning. Do you know what? Such is the, such is the, the pit and, and the mire that you can fall into when you backslide that some of the most shocking things can take place in your life and it still doesn't bring you out. It, it, you know, God is shaking you by the, the, the neck in a sense and you're, you're still not responding. That's how far you can get. And in that moment you ask the question, well, what will it take? What on earth will it take? And it takes this word. I will not go with you. And that, that, seems, that, that seems to do something. They, they've heard what they say now, the, the calamity of this news. And it breaks them and it brings them to true godly mourning. How, how different and how foolish we all are as, as Christians, myself, before anyone else. We think so differently, don't we? We, we look at maybe professing Christians, you know, people that have professed and have been saved and, and, you know, they, they used to walk well with God and they're far away. And we've got a little notebook in our homes or in our lives. And we go, well, you know, if, if this happened, it would bring them back. And if that happens, it brings them back. And if this happens, it would bring them back. Or maybe we look at the unsaved. Oh, if they held that type of message, that will save them. And they've heard that testimony, that will save them. You know, we, we work it all out in our own strategy, don't we? we? We think we know what God must do. And we've got no idea. Well, I don't anyway. And, and it takes this word. This word is what God uses to sober them. I will not go with you. And when they hear that news, they mourn. And they react in that way. But my friend, and I say this with all my heart and filled of love towards you, if you're in this place, this was the something of the green shoot of recovery because truly blessed are they that mourn because they shall be comforted. And if, if God has brought you into the house of God this day, and listen, maybe it's not registering with you and maybe it's going to be another season, another time, but I pray it will be this morning that God is starting to slowly stir those fires and speak to you and talk to you and you know that you're far, you know you're far away from God and you begin to mourn. That's a good thing. Oh, that we would mourn. Because where there's a reaction, then there's an action, isn't there? 
You didn't think I was good at science. I'm not. <laughs> That's just all the only thing I know. You know, there's reactions and then there are actions afterwards. The, the, the action, it comes and, as we should expect. And, and if you notice the, the very things they do, you know, I don't have time to mention all this in great detail, but just, just notice how the Lord presses all of this home in verses 3 and 5. He says, lest I consume thee in the way. Verse 5, ye are a stiff-necked people, I will come up in the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. You know, I look at those words and I think, well, what, what does it mean? You know, what, you would consume him in the way if, if he's in the midst of them, he'll consume them. Uh, and and I, I personally am convinced that the way in which you understand those words is this, that again, God is giving us understanding of how he works by using human actions or human behavioral traits. What do I mean? I mean this. And I'm trying to give you a good example. When someone has done something hurtful towards you, very hurtful, you, you barely can look at them. Can't, you know, for, that, for that initial moment, whatever it is, you, you just can't look at them. Because you, because you know if you were to look at them, and if you know if you were to see them, and if you know if they were to be in your immediate company, that you would just react in a way which you should not react in. And it would be maybe for you, as us prone to our sinful ways, we'd be volatile, we'd be, we'd be filled with passion and anger and rage. Now, I want to make this abundantly clear. God is never on the verge of impulsiveness. And he will never do anything that is contrary to his own nature. But so that we understand it. Oh, listen, so that you understand the seriousness of this. He says, I can't tolerate you in my presence as you are. Lest I consume you. You've got to get back. You've got to recover here. There's got to be reaction, and there's got to be action. Well, what's the action? You've got it in verse 4 and 5. No man put on him his ornaments. Verse 5, those that had ornaments on, put them off. The remaining ornaments. Remember, before it was the, I believe, the golden earrings they used for the golden calf, but they had other gold and jewelry, especially those that maybe were chief and leaders they would have more. And I'm associating this now with, you know, their, their, almost their joy, their prosperity, things which they were allowed to have. This was not now a time of rejoicing. This was time of, this was time of mourning. This was time of grief. This was not a time of mirth. These were extraordinary times, and it called for extraordinary reactions. It called for real mourning. There is a time to rejoice. There is a time to mourn. There is a time to, to, to give and a time to take. Ecclesiastes tells us all the ins and outs of this. This was a time of mourning. This is a time if we're in a place of mourning. Much like Israel when in, when they, in the future years when they're in Babylon. Psalm 137. They hang their harps upon the willows, didn't they? They hang those harps on the willows. And, and they were asked, can you sing us a song? Can you sing us a song? How can, we, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Because he's not in the midst of us. Mourning will lead to action. Action that it will visibly demonstrate repentance. And that makes up the second part of the road to recovery. As I finish my time here, the last part is this. Return. Return. 
You say, Pastor, where, where did the people return? I believe the glimpse is given right there in the likes of verse 7. And Moses took the tabernacle and he pitched it outside the camp, afar off from the camp, and he called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, now Moses now takes action in light of what has happened. The Bible says he takes the tabernacle. That might be a bit confusing for some of us. You have to sort of do a double take here. It's not the, what we call the main tabernacle simply because that's not built yet. This is his own tent. This is his own official place of living. And, and, and normally it was there with the camp of Israel. They would all be together. And there was no distance from Moses' tent and the people's tent as he looked across that whole uh, land and, and mass and plain of all those tents that were raised as they had their place to rest. And now for the first time, Moses takes up the poles and he moves and he goes a great distance outside of the camp. And he, that's where he now is found. What is, what is the Lord doing when he tells Moses to do this? It's a living illustration of broken fellowship with God. And it was here they would see the Lord speaking with Moses. But I say to you, there's actually encouragement here. And it's not the end. Because Moses also knows the door is still open. Everyone then that must seek the Lord must go out of the tabernacle. And they must go to that place where Moses is that they might seek him. It means there is an opportunity, but they've got to return. And they've got to go. And in a sense, they've got to be, be God-conscious and God-centered. And they've got to leave this camp that is associated with their rebellion and their backsliding and their sin. And they've got to go outside of that camp. And they've got to make the journey as hard and as difficult and maybe as humbling as it might be. Because the moment they step out of their tents and they make that journey to where Moses is, they're making the confession, I'm far away from God and I need to get to him. And that is the hardest thing of all. To actually go to him and seek him. Moses stood in, the, the people stood in their own tents and they, they, they saw everything that was unfolding. I, I, I believe it was a, a, a tremendous incentive for them to seek the Lord. You think there when they stood within their own tents in verse 8, it says that the people rose up and every man stood in his tent and they looked after Moses, verse 8. And then in verse 9, they saw the cloudy pillar. I, I like to think, maybe I'm wrong here, but I like to think in my mind, as they began to speak one to the other, do you, do you, do you remember? I can't really think of their names, but you, you remember? We had the pillar of cloud and fire far nearer to us. Do you remember those days when Moses was with us? Do you remember those days when we walked so well? And do, you, do you remember those days when we were brought out of Egypt? And do you remember those days when we, we saw the Lord intervening? So what is it, Christian, this morning? What is, how long has it been? 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? And you, you haven't really admitted it yet. You've been that far away from God. But 
in all that remembrance, it's an encouragement to get back to him. Because there is the door for you, and it's to go and seek the Lord. Do it. Can I encourage you, lastly, by reminding you of Christ? As I think of Moses, we think of our blessed Savior. Hebrews 13 reminds us that our Lord Jesus suffered outside the gates and the walls, didn't he? That's what Hebrews 13 says. And there the apostle exhorts believers to go unto him outside the camp bearing the reproach. So today the Lord calls us one and all back to himself. But it's outside the camp. And it's to where our Christ is the greater than Moses. He was the very personification of the pillar and cloud and fire that is the presence of God. But it requires a return. Return, oh holy dove, return. Sweet messenger of rest. I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. May the Lord give us grace to return and seek him in the Savior's name. Amen. May God bless you.